Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Hey, we're going to take care of business. You know, we really are going to focus on business today. Sometimes the questions lend themselves to more traditional jobs or life balance. They're all related, but today we're going to talk about business. I've grouped the questions together kind of in that category. Hope you find it interesting. Our theme for today is going to be Don't Be Disappointed. Yeah, I'll tell you why. We're using that as a theme here in a little bit when we share our quotation, but that's the theme. Don't be disappointed. Hey, this is where we take 48 minutes each week to unpack questions that you, the listeners, submit. If you've got a question, feel free to shoot it into us. I'd love to consider it for an upcoming radio show. Just go to 48days.com, click on the podcast link, and you'll have an opportunity there to submit your question. Or just shoot it into askdan at 48days.com. Now, we know that... Work is not just an exchange of time for a paycheck. You know, if you're doing that, that leads to burnout. It has to be more than that. It's our best opportunity to live out our calling, to create the legacy we want to leave behind, as well as provide responsibly for our needs and hopefully more than just our needs. You know, more and more, I'm having the opportunity of, of working with people who don't have to work just to create income anymore. But you know, the questions are still, why do I get up in the morning? What am I going to do next? I got a story to share with you about Eddie George, who's a former NFL player that I want to share here in a little bit that addresses that particular issue. Work is not just to create income. It's to live out our purpose. Thus, you have to know your purpose or else work becomes pretty meaningless. Well, you know the routine. If you've been listening at all, we discuss those things here and more. Well, here's some of the questions we'll be looking at. Now, this one is a leftover from last week. I read it right at the end and then pulled the, pulled the plug on it and said I didn't have time to answer it properly. But it, I'm going to start with it today, or pretty near the front, where somebody asked, I'm at the starting line revving my engine and she's about to blow unless I put it in gear and go. I love that. Last week I said that sounds like a line from a country music song. Certainly somebody will pick that up and do something with it. But I love the, the metaphor there, being a car guy, revving my engine. She's about to blow unless, unless I put it in gear and go. Well, here's another one. Dan, I feel called to start a business that requires a ton of startup capital. Really? Uh, how do I find my dreams again? My passion. I'm extremely ambitious and passionate, somebody says, but find walls of self-doubt and criticism preventing me from being my true self. Dan, how do I balance my passion with the need to be financially responsible to my family? Now, we're going to go through a bunch of questions. This is going to be kind of the lightning round today. I'm just going to go through whatever we can in the time we have, but I, but I want you to really be able to hear how to create and achieve work-life balance how to take an idea and turn it into a real business, and then what you can do in the next 90 days if you're ready to put legs on your dream or if you're in that process. Those are some of the things I want you to have as takeaways today. I'm going to be listing some resources for you so that you can do exactly that. Now, here's our quotation for the day. Remember I said our theme is don't be disappointed. Quotation today One of my old favorites comes from Mark Twain, who said, 
20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. Well, I'll share that again at the end today. It's just worth repeating, but a great quotation to get us going, thinking in this vein of how do you do something that may be something you've never done before? Well, that's where adventure, excitement, new opportunity, new levels of success come from. I mean, we know that if you just continue doing what you're doing, you get the same results you've been getting. Well, if that's okay, that's okay with me. But a lot of you want new results. I certainly do. Boy, here at the beginning of the year, I mean, I get really jazzed because I'm always starting new things. I'm always deciding, what am I going to stop doing? So that opens up a little window of opportunity for new things that I can add. What am I going to do new? And I got some new things that are really exciting that I'm launching right now. Now, here's I want to share this story real quickly. There was a piece in the newspaper recently in the Tennessee and here since Eddie George lives here. He played for the Tennessee Titans. Well, he then went on, I think he played one last year for the Cowboys or somebody. But anyway, you know, at about age 40, he discovered he wasn't being asked to renew his contract. I mean, obviously, that's kind of the top of the age limit for most NFL players. Most of them are going to be out by the time they're 35 or 36. I think Peyton Banning's in there somewhere. And I, of course, everybody's wondering when he's going to retire. And after the Super Bowl experience, they're wondering if he's going to wait and go out on top or if he's going to just go out anyway. Of course, he's got a more mature approach to what football means than most NFL players do. But Eddie George was asked about the depression that he went through. He's been real open about that, how deep into despair that he went and the stupid things he did in that period of time, right after he found out he wasn't going to be involved with the NFL anymore. But here are some things that that I, I listened to an interview with him, and there's some important points there that I think we can learn from. Eddie George NFL player said, my heart, soul, and identity were so wrapped up in being an NFL player. And he goes on to say he had no identity outside of that. So when it ended, he didn't know who he was. And that end came much sooner than he had anticipated. Ouch. So if your soul, heart, and identity are wrapped up in your work, if that work ends, you're in big trouble. I mean, obviously, I encourage you to have your heart, soul, and identity wrapped up in things other than just what you do in work. Work is just one tool for a successful life. Well, he goes on to say the NFL says essentially, hey, you made a ton of money. You should be okay for the rest of your real life. And Eddie says, you know, it's not about the money. Now, he was smart enough that I think he did actually put away some money. I mean, those guys, when they get into the ranks where they're making, you know, eight, $10 million a year. And then all of a sudden they go to nothing. Well, a lot of them have spent the $8 million a year and they have nothing. Unfortunately, I know it seems hard to imagine looking in from the outside, but with the big houses, big cars and everything that's expected of somebody who's in the NFL, most of those guys spend more than they're making when they're at their peak. And when you go from that kind of income, boom, to nothing makes it pretty tough. Eddie says it's not about the money. It's about having a purpose in your life. Here's another really important key. Playing football, he says, is not a transferable skill. Now think about that for a little bit. I mean, most of us develop skills that we can take with us to new industries or professions. It's tough to find new opportunities for knocking people down or 
you know, for carrying a little brown piece of leather across a lawn. And then knowing your income is going to drop from that eight or $10 million a year to nothing is also a occurrence that most of us will never have to deal with. But if you lost a job and you were making $60,000 a year, that's one thing. You can probably replace that. Come up with five or six ways to replace that. But if you were making five or six million and your transferable skill is that you're big enough to knock other people down, yeah, it may be a little challenging to replace that because there's not a lot of applications for that. Well, Eddie says it's important to plan for the transition. Nothing lasts forever, and a lot of football players don't deal with the fact that their playing career is going to come to an end. And again, like I said, most of them, uh, it's going to happen at around 35, 36 years old at the very latest. Still very young with no plan, that's a pretty tough place to be. I mean, I often, you hear me tell people, uh, do whatever you want to for the first you know, 35, 40 years of your life, even more than that. You're just getting training then. Then you can figure out what you really ought to do, create a clear focus and go into the most productive 20 years of your life. But what if the only thing you ever did was play football and at 35 years of age, you're out? Wow. I mean, sadly, a lot of those guys end up at really bottom of the barrel socioeconomically and career-wise. But I think we can learn a lot from what those guys go through. I appreciate Eddie being so open about that tough period of his own life, the transition that he went through. You know, for most of us, I think the lessons are a little softer and slower, but they are lessons we need to understand nonetheless. All right. Now that, that has a lot of application for us. We can pull principles from there, but I want to go right into these business questions because there's so many of these that, that we get on a continuing basis. And I just want to run through a bunch of them. I think that it'll help address some of the issues that we're all confronted with. Certainly things that I've gone through as I've started businesses and stubbed my toe and fallen on my face and gotten back up and all those wonderful things we have the opportunity to do when we step out of the traditional path that culture says we ought to do in terms of career, where we get that nice college degree, get a job, stay with a company for 35 years, get a gold, gold watch and drift off into retirement playing golf and fishing. Well, we know that's not a realistic picture of what happens anymore. That is so rare. I mean, if you know somebody who's been on a job, I mean, I'll bet you can't identify five people that you have known in your life at this point who were on the same job for 20 years. That used to be the norm. People would do that and more at this point. I mean, when I, if I ask a group of college kids, how many of you have parents who were in the same job for 20 years? It's rare to have somebody that are parents of college kids at this point who experienced that. Now, you may be able to go back with, to grandparents and remember somebody who was on a job for 35 years, but you're not likely to know anybody who is going to hit that benchmark, even if they're 60 years old today, not likely that they spent somewhere 35 years. Well, here's a question that'll kind of lay the groundwork for uh, some of the other questions about starting a business. I got a question from somebody who said, uh, considering that my calling is going to involve a large pile of cash, how do I balance the principles that you teach about following your calling and while keeping in mind the principles Dave Ramsey teaches, which include not taking on more debt? For example, I feel that part of my calling is to build an outdoor roller hockey facility, which will have leagues, community events, destination for after year school round programs, obviously I will need to purchase a rink among other things to get started. 
It comes from Matt. Well, no, you don't need to purchase a rink to get started with roller hockey. I mean, that would be a horrible risk with a brand new business. I mean, I'd say, uh, look around, get an agreement with a school to use their parking lot on a Saturday morning. I mean, you'll have instant credibility and an audience because of being at the school and you can test your idea. I mean, my oldest son, Kevin, was a bicycle racer, started in bicycle motocross and then went on to road racing. But we used to help organize and attend races all over the country that were set up in downtown business sections and business office parking lots, rural roads. I mean, the most popular criterion races took places on city streets, you know, often right in the middle of a university. Those are great areas. We just closed down the streets, I mean, with their permission, obviously. And it's a great kind of attraction for students on a university campus anyway, and just use their streets for a race. But no one would have dreamed of purchasing land for that kind of a race. Now, frankly, you know, I've never had enough money to start a business, but I always just went ahead anyway with whatever resources I had. Now, here's some of the things that I've done personally, and you just see how they may relate to some of the ideas that you have. I started a company called Auto Appeal, where we did custom pinstriping and other accessories for new cars. Now, when we say we did, it was just me. It was it was me in an old van. But I ordered the supplies, and I had 60 days to pay for them. So I ordered about $300 worth of supplies for this business. And I had already tested the market. I'd talked to the new car dealers, said, would you be interested? And they said, yes, come on down. So I was doing those little pinstripes that we used to see on cars and wheel up moldings and door edge guard, those kind of light accessories. But I invested about $300 in supplies that I didn't even pay for then, just had a time frame where I was invoiced for them. And my projection was that the jobs that I did, I would not have more than 10% of what I charged in materials. So if I did a $30 striping job on a car, the materials to do it would not cost more than $3. And that was really accurate. I mean, I stayed right on that, built that business. So that $300 in supplies turned into $3,000 in revenue. So I had a clean $2,700 net profit in the first month before I even had to pay back the money for the supplies. So I started essentially with nothing. And I really did. And then grew that business rapidly based on the profitability of that. And then did go on to, you know, have employees and multiple vans and lots of other things. If I had known then what I know now, I would have franchised that business. I had a perfect prototype, really profitable model where I was, I could show others how to do it. And I could have sold franchises, but I was young. I didn't know that. And I got bored with the business after it was predictably successful and moved on to other things. One time I did a little telephone address book concept. I purchased a telephone address book at a bookstore for $12.96. I still have that receipt taped to the front of that little book. Then I went to a church and offered to give them a thousand personalized copies of that telephone address book with their church logo on the front cover and the first couple pages on the inside, they could have, you know, schedule services, plan of salvation, whatever they wanted in there. But in exchange, I asked them to give me the names of people with whom they did business. So people in the church who are real estate agents, um, insurance people, um, hotels where they would put people up when they came to town, restaurants where they liked to eat, the barbershop where the pastor got his haircut, those kind of things. Then I gave those businesses the opportunity to highlight their business on the inside front and back covers of that real nice little telephone address book. Now that first project after my $12 and 96 cent investment 
The first project took me four days to complete and netted me $4,600 after paying for the 1,000 free personalized copies that I gave to the church. You know, then the things that I've done have not been high tech. I'm not a high tech kind of guy. They've not been rocket science. They've just been simple ideas where I just simply started with what I had. Now, you all have heard me talk about the story of, of 48 days to the work you love. I mean, how that developed. I didn't have a fancy publishing deal. Nobody knew me. I just started getting stuff done at Kinko's because people were asking about what I talked about in a Sunday school class. And then I moved up from the little spiral bound thing that I was doing and started getting three ring binders that I would buy off the shelf at office depot. I had the text copied. Then I recorded a little cassette to stick down in the pocket of that three ring binder and started selling those at $39 a piece. Well, that was also during a time, you know, Dave Ramsey and I have been friends for a long time. He was developing his radio show. I had an agreement with him. He would promote it. I wasn't buying advertising. We just simply had a revenue share model that if somebody said they heard about it on Dave Ramsey's show, I gave him part of the money that we got. But I started selling that thing, three ring binder, and sold over 50,000 of those. Now, that's not a big number. That doesn't put you on the New York Times. But if you do the math on that, you know, in about a two, well, about a three-year period there, Dave and I went to a Megabook University conference in Los Angeles with Mark Victor Hansen, took our wives with us. But I just came back and started doing the things that they told us to do there. Mark, of course, is the co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Pretty successful with that, over 100 million copies of that book. But I just, it wasn't that high at that point. But I started doing some of the things that he talked about. Dave did as well. But in the next three years, I sold over 50,000 of that three-ring binder that is what has now become 48 Days to the Work You Love. At $39 a piece, you do the math on that, that's $2 million. Again, with startup cost of probably less than $100. At that point, then publishers came knocking on my door. I got a nice advance, and of course, that's gone on to you know do very well for me. But uh, there's a whole lot of those kind of stories that I could share just about things that I've done. One year I contracted for Christmas trees in June, didn't pay a penny for them until I sold them in December. I stored cars and RVs on a vacant lot um, that I had access to. And then I helped customers sell some of those RVs and cars and boats that I saw they were never taken out anyway, and just took a generous commission for my efforts in helping them sell them, but had no investment in the process at all, other than just finding buyers I worked with a gentleman one time who bought an orange grove using the existing oranges on the trees as his only down payment. So he had no money, but he bought the orange grove based on the fact the oranges were just getting ready to ripen. He would sell the oranges and then pay his down payment. And went another time uh, at somebody that uh, purchased an old estate house and he contracted to sell the antique furniture inside as his down payment. One time, this is years ago, one time I bought a house on a Saturday morning, gave the owner $3,000, took over, and this was an old FHA non-qualifying loan, because at the time I wouldn't have qualified, but did some cosmetic improvements, put it back on the market, sold it in about 48 hours for a $21,000 profit. But a lot of the best ideas today are not capital intensive. They don't require buildings, employees, and inventory. Fear of failure is a much larger obstacle than the lack of money. Now I see people who are in a whole lot better shape financially than I was when I started most of the businesses I just described, but fear holds them back. 
Well, I had been bruised so much, I guess. Maybe I didn't have that sense of fear because I, it was like, how, how could it get any worse than it is? So I just jump out there and do it. That's always been my style. So yes, to Matt, who asked about a roller hockey business, absolutely go ahead with that. However, don't try to convince yourself that your calling requires you to violate your personal principles. And that is going into a lot of debt. That's a compromise you never want to make. You don't have to do that. Well, let me jump into some questions. Travis says, Dan, I've been a solo entrepreneur, videographer, media, and event producer for the last nine years with heavy emphasis on the solo for the last three years. I've always had, have enjoyed working with a team and often find myself longing to go back to work as an employee where I was very successful prior to 2005. I've always felt that I was made to be number two, helping a leader organization accomplish its goals and finding problems to solve. I feel like a fish out of water many times. What advice do you have to help me determine a good fit? How can I structure my business to fit my personality better? Great question. Here's why. When I help people look at work opportunities, we want to look at the full spectrum of what's available. That includes being an employee. We can talk about being an employee, being a contract worker, contingency worker, a temp an entrepreneur, an electronic immigrant, I mean, all those terms we have, any of those are fine. The key is to find what fits you. You do not hear me, Dan Miller, saying you need to quit your job and be an entrepreneur. Not at all. Not a chance. I mean, we have uh, one of the gentlemen right now in our coaching mastery program uh, works with the company. He is perfectly positioned to do business consulting And we created a model for him to move out of his position and do business consulting. But as we were doing that, we started looking real closely at what he had available to him right where he was. He proposed to the company he's working for that he start doing this business consulting model to their clients. Would they be interested? They said, yes, they set as a goal for him the very first year, this is 2013, they set as a goal for him $2 million in revenue with this new consulting model that he proposed to them. He actually did over $9 million in business with that model. They saw what was happening. They kept giving him additional salespeople to sell and deliver that. They did over $9 million for that he was compensated in excess of $300,000. That's pretty tough to duplicate when you just waltz out on your own and say, I'm going to be a coach. I mean, I'm the first one to admit that. That's that's a, a big goal to achieve. Wow. My advice to him, and I mean, this is where we ended up, is don't kill the golden goose. Stay where you are. My goodness, stay there. There's nothing wrong, shameful about that at all. So for a lot of people, and especially like what Travis is asking here, if you recognize that you really function better at being part of a team, you know, being part of an organization where you're a number two person, help accomplish what the goals, the goals that have been set out by the company, by all means do that. Don't try to artificially make yourself a entrepreneur, solopreneur, and bring on all the other challenges that are going to be part of that. No. It's finding your sweet spot. So for 
a lot of you, it's going to be to continue where you are. You hear me talk about Pierce Mars. Pierce is one of our sales coaches. He's been involved in our coaching processes for probably about five years now. He does sales coaching. He speaks at Rotary Clubs. We use him as a spokesperson for helping companies understand the DISC profile. So if State Farm wants an overview of how they're going to use the DISC profile to screen new agents and applicants and help their salespeople sell better, we send Pierce to do that. Well, guess what? He's kept his job. He sells loading dock equipment. The kind of big, you, know, you see at Dollar General where the trucks back up to the docks, the big black bumpers, that's the kind of stuff he sells. That's a big business. He just had the best year he's ever had. Lisa, his wife, was able to, to quit her job. She loves the new life they have. They just took a trip to China. They're doing other things. But guess what? He still has his job. He's never heard from me. Man, you're going to get rid of that job so you can just ramp up your coaching. No. Look for and solutions. And for a lot of people, it doesn't mean walking away from a great job. If that's a fit for you. I mean, Pierce loves his customers, the company he works for. Golly, they give him trips and bonuses. I mean, what a great deal. But his being invested in coaching on the side has helped him increase his own sales dramatically. I mean, what the best of both worlds. Well, let me go to Scott's question. This is, my name is Scott, and I've been following your work for several years now. I've dreamed of starting my own business. This is a guy whose engine is revved up and about to blow a gasket. It says, I dreamed of starting my own business since I was a kid. I made up business cards and dreamed of the day, but then life happened. I went a couple of years to Ohio State University based on what others thought I should do, but it was a poor fit. My day dreaming of working for myself interfered with classwork, so I dropped out. I bounced around for a little, restoring vintage cars, thought I would like to do auto restoration. I had a passion, but as soon as I started to work for Graham Auto Mall in Mansfield, Ohio, I soon realized that to be paid to do paint jobs on Chevy Berettas was not what I enjoyed. In an act of desperation to leave there, I looked into a job that was opening up where my father worked in the engineering hydraulics lab. Now, here's the problem. I hated hydraulics. My father had a part-time business running a hydraulics repair business, but it was never my thing. Well, he took the job there, obviously. Time has a way of slipping by. That was June 1994, and I have spent every year in the last 19 hoping to be laid off so I could start my own thing. The only problem is I was never laid off, even though everyone else in the engineering lab was. They said they kept me because I kept finding solutions for anything, but that's the problem. I can find a way to do many things, but start my own business. I've made a million plans and considered a million more, but I'm at the starting line revving my engine and she's about to blow unless I put it in gear and go. Help me celebrate my 20-year anniversary with an exit plan. You know, what a great position to be in. I know it's frustrating, Scott. And you, I mean, what a clear visual picture I have of the engine revving. And that's dangerous for an engine. It's more, it's healthier for an engine to have a load on it, to be pulling something than be running free at a high speed. Running free at a high speed is when you spin a rod, blow a piston, bad things happen. And I've got a clear picture of what you're describing. At the same time, you're in the driver's seat. Thank goodness. Again, a clear metaphor with what you show as a visual example there. You're in the driver's seat because only you can put that baby in gear and go. 
Now, this is not a time, again, you've heard me talk about different examples here in the last five minutes, but it doesn't mean you just burn the bridge where you are. But the first thing is to clarify, what would that business look like? What would it be that you did? Is it going to be restoration? Golly, I I love watching counting cars on TV, you know, where they take stuff and do these dramatic restorations. They'll take a 56 Ford and boom, all of it. They'll take it out of the junkyard, you know, and next thing you know, they're selling it for $65,000 because they did a restoration. But you don't have to do a whole lot of those if you know what you're doing in the course of a year to create a really good income. If you've got the ability to do that, wow, that may be a reasonable exit plan for you. Map it out what it would look like. Create a business plan. Go through that. What would have to happen in the first 30 days? You know, if you, could you do this in addition to the job you have now where you spent 90 days doing the work on the side and giving your, yourself a chance to complete a couple projects where you got some money in the bank, a little leeway there, a little margin before you quit your job. Create a transition plan. And it sounds like, again, you're in the driver's seat. You're not at risk of being laid off or fired because you are good. It's interesting. You're a bit, if you weren't good at what you're doing, you'd be on the street. You have to ask yourself, what would you do if you were in the street? Would that then launch you into doing something on your own? But see, don't wait for that train wreck to happen. Don't wait until you're in a position of desperation. Create your own exit plan, but put a timeline on it. If it's six months, What has to happen in that six months for you to have an easy, smooth transition out? Boy, let us know how that goes. Wow. Don't hit your 20-year anniversary and something where you've been trying to escape for 19 years. Just recognize the advantages you've got and what you describe. Create that exit plan and go. Well, let me move on. Adrian says, I love your podcast. Starting to read 48 days. Have a question. How do I find my dreams again? My passion. Taking all types of personality tests such as Myers-Briggs. The career recommendations don't appeal to me. I feel like I'm in a holding pattern in life, looking for a new job. Absolutely nothing appeals to me. My current job pays well, but I can't stand it. I'm 44 years old. It feels like jobs have sucked the life out of me. My motivation is gone. Dreams are gone. I'm trying to reconnect spiritually as well. Maybe that's where I'll find some purpose. I know there has to be something more to life than mundane. Thanks for all you do. Wow. Adrian, yes. There's more to life than just going through the motions every day, your own version of Groundhog Day, and just in a job that you can't stand, even though the pay is good. Again, this is one of those catch-22s. A lot of people stay in what I call comfortable misery just because it's predictable. You know, so the pay is good. I mean, what, what does that mean? I mean, it implies that you could not duplicate the pay if you moved out into something else. But see, that that's a real irony because... How can we assume that we can make more money doing something we detest, whereas the assumption then is if we move into something that we really love, our income would go down? I don't know how we get that thinking. My thinking is the opposite of that. Wow. If I can eke out a living, if I can be making $60,000 a year doing something I really don't care about, goodness turn me loose in something I really enjoy, surely I can double that. I mean, that's always how my thinking has gone. I'd rather have, and I'd rather have, I'm the kind of guy where uh, you tell me, you know, gee, if you, uh, you'll pay me to paint your house and you'll pay me 
$25 an hour to do it. I'm like, no way. I'm going to give you a bid of $1,800 to do your house because I'll take a chance that I can do it in such a fashion and do good quality work. Well, I end up, I'll end up making $30 an hour. I'll always take it on a project basis rather than a guaranteed hourly basis. Now, could I lose my shirt on that? Yeah, it could happen, but I'm always going to take that risk because I like the thrill of, you know, the open-endedness of that kind of arrangement. I've never, never in my life worked where I was paid hourly. I've always done other things as you might suspect. Now in your case, Adrian, the, the real issue though, is you don't know what you're moving to. I mean, you've identified what you're moving from. And as long as you're focused on what you're moving from, that's where you can get, you know, discouragement, frustration, anger, fear, depression, all those wonderful things that we don't want to have. But you have to get clear on what you're moving to. So yeah, you have to de- determine. And, and as I write about, you know, in wisdom meets passion, passion doesn't show up full blown. Passion is more developed than it is discovered. So you have to identify what would be the characteristics of work that you really love. Look at yourself. What do you know about yourself in terms of skills and abilities that you have? What are transferable areas of competence? I mean, surely you're not like an NFL player where all you know how to do is knock people on their butts. I mean, you have other transferable skills. What are those? What are the skills you could take with you? And then look at your personality. How do you relate to other people? What kind of environments are you most comfortable in? Are you better with um, young people, old people? Maybe better with ideas and things rather than people. I mean, just look at those, identify those things you know about yourself, and then look for recurring themes. At 44 years old, you've had enough life experience, you ought to be able to look back and see some recurring themes. Ah, it's when you're doing this that you're really in the zone. Hey, it's when you're doing this that time just seems to fly by. You ought to be able to recognize some patterns like that. If you have trouble, ask people who know you well to help you with that. But that's how you start to create a clear focus, a clear sense of who you are. And it can be just a seed of a passion. Don't wait for something that just your heart is bursting in the morning when you get up. That'll come later. That comes as a result of doing something where you do it with excellence and are affirmed for that. And you do it well over a period of time. Passion grows and builds as you have that experience. Brent says, from uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Thanks for um, answering my question about coaching business. A couple episodes ago, I've ordered all the books you recommended related to the subject coaching. Also, my wife and I are planning to attend the Coaching with Excellence seminar coming up soon. All right, we have a separate savings account for this purpose. Well, awesome. In order to fast track my career and build a platform, I've been looking for into franchise of a company called The Growth Coach. Alberta is a booming economy and a hub to thousands of oil and gas companies and other businesses. My questions are, do you have any information you could share with your listeners about this company? What steps would you recommend or avoid to, or avoid in order to find out if it may be a right fit for an individual? Well, that you've got a couple of real key questions there. Yeah. You need to find out if it is a fit for you and if the franchise model is a good fit in terms of a business model for you. Now, if you, just to understand real quickly, I mean, we look at franchises, I mean, my goodness, like 60% of commerce out there today is done through franchise businesses. So if you get a meal, it's very likely to come from McDonald's, Wendy's, Subway, TGI Fridays, you know, Golden Corral, we could go on and on and on. Those are all franchises. If you get your hair cut, 
chances are it's done at a franchise. You know, you get your carpets clean, chances are it's done by a franchise, all those kind of things. And a franchise just simply means that there's a business model that's been proven. So we have a prototype. What happens in order to have that opportunity, you pay for the privilege of using their name, their system, where they train you and it's in place. The downside of that is they have a system, they have methods, they want it to be done just like that. Franchises are not really designed for true entrepreneurs. I would have a really difficult time in a franchise. So if I have a McDonald's franchise, my goodness, I'm going to be thinking, you know, the first weekend, well, we got all these cars lined up. What if we had a mobile car wash where people could choose one of two lines? One, they get their car wash before they pull up to the ordering window and we charge them an extra 10 bucks for that. It's an automatic process. I mean, McDonald's is going to say, you're crazy. We don't do that. That's not the way we do things around here. You need to do it just exactly like we tell you. Well, I'd have a hard time with that. That being said, it's a great model. It's a great opportunity to get into something where there is a lot of name recognition already and where they do help you. And the mantra of franchises, of course, is you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. So the growth coach, okay. The growth coach. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I mean, it, it's, they, uh, provide coaching to small businesses. That's what they do. That's their target audience. Uh, they've been around, oh, they've been around about 10 years or more. Uh, their investment, the investment for that is between 40 and $50,000. That's just the franchise fee. They actually get set up. They project that it's going to be somewhere between 60 and $80,000. So that's what you would need. You have a 10 year agreement. And what happens is right out of the gate, you pay 10% or more, it's negotiable, but at least 10% of your gross revenues to them for that 10-year period. Now, what that would mean, if I, I, yesterday I had two new Eagles Club clients, all right, that's the standard kind of coaching package that I do. I do one or two people a month, but yesterday I started two new people. It's $4,500 for that coaching package. That means if I am under the growth coach franchise, then I send in $450 of that immediately. No matter what my expenses are, no matter what my other costs are, it comes right off the top. 10% goes to them because it's a franchise. Again, I, I'd have a hard time with that. I mean, there almost is a built-in adversarial relationship between the franchisee, the business owner, and the franchisor, the company who owns a franchise. So ask yourself that. Now, with the growth coach, that is not a highly recognized name. Most people you call on aren't really going to recognize the name. So you aren't going to get a lot of name recognition. In some industries, it's different, obviously. If, if you and I are going to start a hamburger joint, you know, if, if we call it Brent and Dan's hamburger joint, we're going to have our work cut out for us. Nobody ever heard of us. As opposed to if we open and it says Burger King on the front, we're going to have business the first day because people are familiar with the brand, the franchise. That's not true with the growth coach. So you have to look at what is it, what are they going to offer you that you could not do on your own? Now, I know I'm probably going to sound like I'm not really a big fan of this and, and really I'm not. But if you need that kind of structure and if they offer you enough value there, I mean, to pay not only the franchise fee up front, so you're paying, you know, sixty to eighty thousand dollars up front, and then ten percent on an ongoing basis, locked in for ten years. I mean, you better be getting some really good value from them. 
And it's not going to come in terms of name recognition. They aren't going to go out and make sales calls for you. You're going to have to do that anyway. Ultimately, people are going to decide if they want to do business with you, the individual, not with the brand, not with the company, with you, the individual in this kind of setting. I mean, if you're talking about doing business coaching, that's what it comes down to. So really 90% of the process is going to be dependent on you, the individual anyway. I'm not sure there would be enough added value in this case for the franchise fee. My opinion, my opinion, we used to have a DJ here in Nashville, uh, Jerry House. He was known everywhere. The guy was just absolutely hilarious, but he would do these little characters where he would go into another voice and he'd do these things. And at the end he'd say, that's my opinion and ought to be yours. So I don't use that openly, but sometimes I think that, I guess. Well, John says, now, a lot of the questions that come in about small business here are related to the fear of doing anything new and different. John says, I'd like to start a cleaning business on the side. How to start with, how do I start with less capital? I'm always afraid. What's the best practice for a guy like me to get over the fear of starting a business or a new career? Well, the business that you're talking about, a cleaning business, I mean, what do you need capital for? I mean, take the vacuum cleaner you've got sitting in your closet you know, buy a bucket at Walmart for two bucks and a squeegee for three bucks and you're in the cleaning business. I mean, just, I mean, keep the capital expenses low. You don't need a, a $20,000 van with your name on the side. I mean, my goodness, we've got the, the ladies who clean at our house. They do drive a van now that I think about it, but it has nothing on the side. I'm sure it's just a personal van that one of them have. They come in, they bring all their own cleaning supplies. We like it that way. So Joanne doesn't have to be making a list of things that she needs to replace. They bring all their own supplies. Boom. They come in clean system, but believe me, they could replace what they have as materials and supplies for 300 bucks easily. I'm sure, including the vacuum cleaners that they use. So, just start. There's very little downside. There's very little risk to what you're describing. If you go out and you get a couple cleaning projects, I mean, what's the worst that could happen after 30 days, you decide, gee, I don't want to do this. It's too much work. I have to come in after hours when they're closed. I don't like that. What? And you decide, I don't want to do this anymore. It's not like you rented a building, you purchased a lot of inventory and you're heavily indebted because of the, no, just start a cleaning business. But the best way to get over your fear is just get out there and do it. There's a, of course, a quotation from W. Clement Stone, you know, do what you fear and the fear disappears. There's a lot of truth in that. Just get out there. Peter says, now this, he's got some that are kind of the same here. I want to start my own business, but my mind focuses on the negative more than the positive. I'll get out of the challenge of starting new. Chris says, I have dreams to be a healthcare entrepreneur, but have a difficult past. I'm extremely ambitious and passionate, but find walls of self-doubt and criticism preventing me from being my true self. How can I be more confident in the person God made me to be? Somebody else says, Dan, I've been wondering what it is I really want to do. I feel like I know, but taking that leap of faith seems scary because what if I don't really like it? I don't want to be that person who's constantly looking around. I want to find something I can dive in ahead first and be excited about. I like aspects of my job now, but I have no security and I'm always fearful of failing. I suspect my fear of failing is not job related, but instead a personal issue as it is something I struggle with in any situation. Any insight how to get over my fear of failing or how to confidently pursue other jobs that are my true passion or calling and not be fearful that I've misidentified an interest as a passion. Wow. 
You know, sometimes fear of success is a bigger obstacle than fear of failure. A lot of times when I hear people talk about this, I hear subtly a message that it scared me to death. If my income went to a hundred thousand dollars, I don't know what I'd do. I don't know who I'd be. It's a lot safer just to kind of stay where I am and not have to deal with any of that. I mean, I, I really believe that. I think sometimes the fear of success is a bigger obstacle than the fear of failure that people talk about. Just look in the mirror, ask yourself that question. I mean, I've had to do that. Being raised, little Mennonite kid, geez, it's egotistical and selfish to want anything for yourself, to be, have anybody look up to you or do anything that people would compliment you on. Real dangerous ground there. See, the Bible says pride goeth before the fall. If you make money, we know money is dangerous, right? Money, money is going to pull us into things that are ungodly. The safest place to be is poor. I was going to add some other adjectives there, but I'll just stick with that one. You know, poor and behind the scenes. Safest place to stay. Ask yourself if those beliefs are holding you back. If they are, you've got to learn to get past that. That's why it was so helpful to me as a kid to listen to things like the strangest secret. We become what we think about. When you start thinking about things and what you'd like your life to be like two years from now, it's amazing how doors of opportunity start appearing. Well, we're almost out of time and I've got, I have 18 pages of questions left in my hand that I printed off that are just small business questions. Obviously we aren't going to be able to get through those. Ah, there's so many things here. People ask about, you know, how do you, how do you balance a new baby and a dream? You know, how do you find time to do things? I'm going to put some things in the, the radio show notes today. I'm going to have some links in there more than usual. I'm going to have in there actually another teleseminar that I did recently where I went into some of the other things that we're not going to be able to cover here. So it was called my work, my life. I mean, I'm going to put a link right directly to that. I'll give you backdoor access to listen to that where I developed just these things having to do with starting a business. We've got a resource kit. I'm going to put that in there. The entrepreneur startup kit. Ashley helped me put that together. It's got a whole bunch of our best resources for helping you walk through this process of how do you take an idea and actually do something with it? I'm going to put in there my schedule. A lot of the questions that come in, how do you find time? You know, how do you work a full job, have kids activities and find time to do anything? Well, you need to be real intentional about your use of time. Take those precious 168 hours that we're all given and decide in advance how you're going to use those. You can continue your job. You can continue being a, a faithful, effective mom or husband and daddy. And you can do this. You, if you carve out eight to 10 hours a week, you'll be amazed what you can do in 90 days. If you take your idea and you dedicate eight to 10 hours a week, shaping that you'll be amazed where you'll be in 90 days. Well, I'll put those links in there. I'll put in the, the link, the special link we've got for registration for innovate, which is where we do exactly what we're talking about, how to take ideas, put legs on them. We're going to have a blast here at that event, March 20th and 21st. I'd love to meet you here for that. Other things I've got in there as well. Hey, let me remind you of our quotation from the front. I want you to hear that again. We'll end with that. Mark Twain says, 
20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. Well, there you go. Taking care of business. You know, I wish we had, sometimes I wish we had four hours and 80 minutes (laughs) rather than 48 minutes. Well, keep the questions coming. I love the interaction with you, the listeners. That's what makes this uh, radio show come alive. I love doing it. It's one of the highlights of my week as I share freely. But I'm thrilled to be part of this community where we all are, in fact, finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. You know I don't want you to settle for less. Have a wonderful week.